You are on trend with the Alumni Trending Podcast. My name is Paul Clifford, and throughout my career in higher education, my mission has been to connect alumni to what they love most about their alma mater and to activate them in ways that support the aspirations of the institutions I have served. As advancement professionals, we are leading a movement, a mobilization of alumni in support of education for a lifetime. On this podcast, you will hear the voices leading our profession, advancing our institutions, and keeping higher education strong around the world. You are going to learn and be inspired by the passion and purpose driving these advancement professionals right here on Alumni Trending. What's up, trendsetters? Welcome to the Alumni Trending Podcast. Our trend lines on this episode include nonprofit philanthropy, creating diversity, equity, and inclusion from the inside out, advocacy and support of women of color in fundraising and philanthropy, and the Blacks in Advancement Pledge. You might remember we talked to Kim Nione a couple episodes ago about that pledge, and today we're going to talk with Yolanda F. Johnson a little bit more about diversity, equity, and inclusion and how that pledge came about. But let me tell you a little bit about our guest before we actually dive into our conversation. With more than two decades of experience in the nonprofit sector, Yolanda F. Johnson has successfully led fundraising operations for a wide range of nonprofit organizations. Her fundraising expertise includes securing foundation, corporate, and government funding, and cultivating a diverse major gifts portfolio. In addition to leading YFJ Consulting, Yolanda is the founder of Women of Color in Fundraising and Philanthropy and president of Women in Development, New York City's premier professional organization for women in fundraising and philanthropy. Yolanda has also had an outstanding career as a performing artist, a composer, producer, educator, and she has used her background as a performer to become a sought-after fundraising expert. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Alumni Trending Podcast, Yolanda F. Johnson. Yolanda, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. What an amazing background that you have in nonprofit philanthropy. Can you walk us through how you got involved in this as a career and what drives your passion? Well, you know, I've always had a love of giving back and of bringing people together uh, in order to get the good work done, just the collective spirit of of good work. And so um, that's something that's been on my heart from a very young age, actually. And so I I have a background in performance, and then I also have studied both academically performance and fundraising. And so it's just been a real blessing and and I've been very fortunate to have crafted a life where I've been able to to put everything together to to move things forward, both for the sectors of fundraising and philanthropy and also for people of color in them as well. All right. I can't go too deep into this conversation without talking about your career as a performer before we dive into our our other topics. So can you give us a little bit of a a flavor of the type of performance, uh, the type of music that you're you're interested in and that you perform and compose? <laughs> when you first started that sentence, I was like, oh my God, he did not tell me he was going to ask me to sing. So I'm so glad that you didn't. And <laughs> but... No, no, not at all. I'm not going to put you out of the spot like that. 
Not that bad. Um, no, you know, I am trained, I'm classically trained as an opera singer. I have an album of spirituals, however. I realized the parallel. I was talking to a friend the other day, and I realized the parallel between um, a lot of the artistic pursuits that I have and the fundraising and philanthropic pursuits as well. So I uh, specialize in spirituals and the Underground Railroad and women composers and black classical composers, really the unsung heroines um, and heroes. I like to use arts for social justice. So a year ago, a little over a year ago, I produced and starred in a production of Giancarlo Minotti's The Consul that we set at the American Consulate in Mexico to tackle the immigration debate. And, you know, it's just a really powerful tool. And so um, piano was my first instrument, but I am, I'm, I'm an opera singer and I'm a classical vocalist. I love doing that. I love still offering that. It's a little weird during the pandemic in the virtual realm, but um, it's still a great thing to do. You know, that ties so closely to the work that we do. And it might not be readily apparent to those who are listening to the podcast, but, and I know you've experienced this throughout your career, but the best professionals that we run into in this business are people who actually don't look at this as a job. They look at it as a calling, right? It's, it's almost evangelical in some ways where they're singing the song of their institutions or of their nonprofit organizations from the top of the mountain so that the rest of the world can can hear the message. And so I think there's there's a lot of parallels between performing arts and because of the passion that that unlocks within people and the passion that we're trying to unlock uh, on behalf of the philanthropies that we support, myself in higher education, you in the, the nonprofit realm. Uh, but I'm sure that those are parallels that you draw in your consulting work. Uh Certainly so. That was a really lovely articulation of it that you just gave now. I try to take all of the tools, you know, from the performer's toolkit and trove, you know, and it's very much transferable over to the nonprofit realm and to the realm of all the good work that needs to be done in the world today. And specifically, I have a workshop actually called All the World's a Stage where we take performance practice and I use it literally to help people and to train them on how to make the ask how to be comfortable in it, how to enjoy their existence in the nonprofit realm of fundraising and philanthropy, and how to be successful, quite frankly, getting into character so that you can maximize the success of, of your organization, of whatever it is you're trying to move forward. And so I certainly agree with that, that we use uh, philanthropy and fundraising. I know the different endeavors that I have and the organizations that I founded, we use it to amplify voices, to your point, to allow people to have that voice and to be heard and to be seen and to be celebrated. And it's a great wide world out there. So it's also a very educational experience just to learn about the things that are out there and what people are doing and, and how we can be a part of it. Absolutely. It also speaks to the work that goes on behind the scenes in both of those settings, right? You just don't you just don't show up on a podcast and have the host ask you to sing, right? There, there's preparation that needs to take place to be ready to sing. And so that's why I'm not going to ask you today. But it's that same kind of behind the scenes preparation that takes place when you're trying to put yourself in the shoes of the donor, when you're trying to think about what their passions are, uh, when you're trying to think about objections that you might receive and how you're going to handle those rejections. It's one thing to handle them in the moment. It's another thing to have had prepared for that and have had that experience so that you're better at handling it in the moment because you've prepared to be 
on that stage, right? Whether it's the performance stage or on the stage yeah. in, in somebody's office or in their living room, asking them to make really transformative uh, philanthropic decisions. Definitely. You hit the nail on the head. In fact, have you taken my workshop? And I just didn't know you were in the audience because that's the first point that I make. You know, it was Benjamin Franklin who said, uh, you know, by failing to prepare, you're preparing to fail. We have to really remember that there's no substitute for preparation. And the example that I give is a performance that I had many years ago thankfully. And it's also psychosomatic. So it's like, if you tell your body that you can't do something, it's going to, it's going to be like, I took my lead from you and I couldn't do it and I didn't do it. But preparation, there's just no substitute for it. It gives you a calm. It gives you a peace. It gives you an extra creativity to be able to make something your own, to be able to pivot, um, you know, because you can't know everything, but when you're at least prepared, it also shows respect to your audience because they know that you took the time to understand them a little bit better. So there's certainly no substitute for it. And you, you have to, that's the very first step in, in fundraising and philanthropic success is to, to be prepared. It, it also seems like there are other parallels between your your work as an artist and your work in the philanthropy world. I know you mentioned that some of your art is inspired by the Underground Railroad and the experience of people of color. And really, that seems to have been also what drives your interest and passion. You've been a longtime advocate and supporter of women of color in particular in the fundraising and philanthropy space and have been a founder of an organization to advance that. Talk a little bit about your, uh, your work in the women of color in philanthropy space. The genesis of that journey really happened because I happened to be the first black president of women in development at New York, the New York City chapter of women in development, as you mentioned. And that's a big diversity milestone because WID is 41 years old. And so I was the first, um, you know, just a few years ago. And that sparked many different things in me. I started receiving like an outpouring just of just wonderful notes of, from women of color, literally saying, I finally see somebody that looks like me at the helm of this organization. And now I feel like I, I have a place there a little bit more, you know, and that was very important to me. And we launched a diversity and inclusion task force at that time. We dug deep into WID's history, just what it was as an organization, how to make it more diverse. And that was a two-year endeavor. It culminated this June. So I wrote an article about that, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion from the inside out. And then I just said, you know, what I learned most from that process is that change does take time. So that task force, I'm transitioning it, I have transitioned it rather, into a committee. That's a standing committee for WID to move that work forward. But it was still really clear that there was a remaining need for a space for women of color to celebrate and build community around the unique experience of being a woman of color in fundraising and in philanthropy. And so I moved forward even in a pandemic because the work has been standing for a long time and it had been in process for a long time, but we pushed it forward and woke born <laughs> earlier this year. And we already have more than 700 members across the nation and internationally. Um, it's been a beautiful experience of bringing people together in community during this virtual time that we're in. Uh, we've got some amazing programming. We have 
career assessments on both the philanthropic and fundraising sides. We have a symposium that's coming up in November that's a day-long event of, of getting together and tackling lots of different topics. We have networking, we have a mentorship and executive accountability partner program that are launching next year along with the leadership initiative. And so it's just been a really, really exciting time and really exciting space. I say, you know, the time is now and the place is woke. And that's what we call ourselves, woke. I had an inkling that that was how you would pronounce <laughs> the how you would pronounce the acronym, but I didn't want to make an assumption there. But that is uh, that is fantastic and 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 certainly uh, a, a great a great moniker. But I want to take a step back for a second and just really, really take in what it means to be the first black president of women in development. Now, now women in development, New York City, if Washington DC is the political capital of the United States, right? New York City is certainly the financial and philanthropic capital of the country. Uh, right. Philanthropy is king in New York City. I mean, that is a, New York City is a place where people give you money to leave their office. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, right. It's kind of money. So, you are the president of Women in Development New York City, not only the premier women's professional organization in terms of fundraising and philanthropy um, in New York City, but arguably in the world. Talk a little bit about uh, the responsibility of being the first. It really did make me take pause and just take a step back to see what legacy I wanted to leave, because we all know uh, the realities of the situation of being the first, even the reality of being a woman of color and a person of color, uh, that many times you have to work that much harder. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that I, I use the opportunity to move people of color forward, but all women, you know, I'm certainly here as a woman of color for women of color. I started woke for that reason, but I also champion all women in these professions. And so I just wanted to make sure that I was thoughtful and strategic about exactly what I want to accomplish and what I want to, to leave behind and, and hopefully have continue. And I've been really grateful that I've, I've had that opportunity. So I want to dive into a little bit of your work with uh, women of color in fundraising and philanthropy. And you've talked about the community that has come together around this effort in the initial stages, over 700 women of color now involved in, in the organization. You know, I am a, a white professional. Uh, I acknowledge the, the privilege that I have. I, I also acknowledge the genuine interest that I have in being an ally and an advocate and uh, a co-conspirator in some ways to helping use my privilege in, in ways that help others, that that lifts up other voices, that makes sure that all are all are included. What are the commonalities? What are the things that you are hearing uh, from your work in women of color and fundraising and philanthropy that might help me better pursue my role as as a white leader? in this space. What do I need to know that continue to be woke, if you will? Oh, I see what you did there. That's great. Right. Um, <laughs> well, actually, Paul, you know, um, what has come about organically from the entire process of establishing woke is another group called Allies in Action Membership Network that I also created. Because going through this 
process with folk during the season and movement of racial equity, I also received an outpouring of communications from non-people of color, from you know white colleagues across the nation who said exactly what you just said. I had people literally getting in touch and saying, what can I do? And what do I do? I recognize my privilege and I wanna do better. And I sensed that this time in our society, like we really are on the cusp of real change. I can feel it. And I just said, you know, if you're willing to give up that privilege and you're willing to do the work, I am here for that. Let's work together and move it forward. There's a lot at stake right now in our country. And, um, and, and so we've started that work. And so Allies in Action is based upon four pillars. So to answer your question, it's that, this is what we determine to be, what allies can do, what white allies can do to move women of color forward. So it's education, legislation, inclusion, and action. Education, you have to educate yourself. Our opening statement does begin with, it is not a black person's responsibility to educate white people about racism. We stand by that, but at the same time, after that comes, but if you're here to do the work and you really mean it and you're ready to move things forward, we appreciate that and we're here to help. So we just had our first anti-racism seminar in partnership with Aspen Leadership Group. It was a beautiful day. People came away. You know, this is life-changing work. It's life-transforming work. So educate yourself. Read books. Allies is putting out a whole um, resource list starting this week where you can go to the website and find the books and articles and lots of different resources just to continue educating yourself about things. And then legislation, we often go through the motions of life and don't understand that real change happens whenever you know laws change. And so legislation is not political because I don't really have an interest in being political, but I do have a vested interest in illuminating the path to making good decisions toward racial equity and gender equity. And so that's what we're doing. We have a really cool program coming up at the end of October. We've got um, a wonderful, the New York State Majority Leader is going to be there. We've got an amazing political scientist, Megan Francis, who's going to be joining us just to have that discourse about how to vote toward racial equity, you know, how, how to advocate for, to, for it, you know. And that advocacy happens in your daily life. You make sure that you're being aware of unconscious bias in yourself. You're making sure that you're recognizing when your surroundings, personal and professional, are not diverse and see what you, you can do about that. So that's education, legislation, inclusion. That's basically what I just said. You're, you're making an assessment of your life and, and how you can help move the needle, how you can speak up for someone, how you can give up that seat at the table maybe to give someone else an opportunity. And then action is putting it all together. And action's two-pronged for allies. It's partially personal. So something, I mean, we all have stuff to fix in ourselves, right? right. Uh, we all have areas where we can grow. So that's a personal thing. And then what I'm super excited about is the action component of allies in action is allies give. So each year, beginning with year end 2020, every single ally, we've got nearly 150 allies. Um, everyone's going to make a gift of a size that's meaningful to them. So this is putting your philanthropic dollars to work. So this is another thing you can do to be more woke. And it's all going to be toward women and girls of color and racial equity. We are going to make a big impact. I'm really excited about it. Um, my consulting practice, YOJ Consulting, is building a portfolio for all of the allies to be able to make that gift. And we're just really thrilled about it. So um, that's the long answer, but it's what I really believe in. It's why the entire the 
entire premise upon which our allies program is based. So I think those are the four things that you can look into doing to be more woke. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, education, legislation, inclusion, and action in that two-pronged approach to action. I, I think that we, I think that we often stop after the education piece, right? But it's, it's really important to persist through that. I know in some of my, my personal education, if I'm being completely honest and, and honest with my, with myself and with the audience here, but some of the some of the reckoning that takes place when you're when you're doing this work is 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 really hard to hear, um, and and it requires us as leaders to really have the fortitude to persist through it, right? To to really understand yeah. why those why those messages are hard to hear, right? It's 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 that internal reckoning, and so yes, you're absolutely right. It's not the responsibility of of others to do the teaching, but more of a self-education process. But I know as I've gone through that process, I've had to stop to really self-reflect and think when I hear the word white supremacy, what that actually means in this context and uh, how to be anti-racist requires courage that we might not have uh, mustered before. And so, and I'm going to include all the links to the organizations that you're involved in and all the resources that we talk about um, in the show notes on the Alumni Trending Podcast website. You referenced earlier an article that you wrote for the Chronicle of Philanthropy called How We Are Creating Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion from the Inside Out. And it takes a look at your work as the, the president of Women in Development. It gives a roadmap for how you can actually infuse diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout your organization. But can you take us through some of the, the high points that people might want to look out for. Sure. You know, that article was just really a labor of love because I, we had culminated the, the task force and I learned a lot from that process and it was a real um, joy to be able to share it. I think that at the crux of it all, it's just, you want to see real change, right? So often we do task force, we task forces, we do um, committees, we do different entities, we come out with reports and then they go onto a shelf. Like I know a lot of people who are in the audience today probably have done a strategic plan and it's on somebody's shelf somewhere. And so right. you want to be able to pull these things out and actually use them. You want to bring the research and the work to life. And the way to organically do that, you have to start from the inside out, as the article suggests, the name of the article. And, you know, you have to do the assessment first and, and understand yourself. You have to know yourself before you can make change, right? So doing that assess the assessment process, being honest about that process, and then making measurable, actionable steps for change. And, you know, you want to be able to do something immediately because it builds the momentum and sends things moving forward. And then you want to have the longer term things that you want to accomplish as well. You want to back everything into a strategy so that you know that you're being true to your organization, to its mission. Um, and again, that it's actionable steps, things that can really take place. So look at your programming. Look at what you're offering. Look at your leadership. Do your constituents see themselves reflected in the leadership? These are, you know, very basic DEI principles, but really profound at the same time. You also should look at your mission. And I suggest that many organizations consider adapting or adopting, rather, um, core value statements 
So you have your mission, you have your vision, and then what are your values? What do you really stand for? What is everything that you do back into along with your mission? And so what WID did is we established a core value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what's interesting about it is we actually changed the order of the acronym, which you know means different things to different people. Some people are more sensitive about it than others, but ours is IED. It's inclusion, equity, and diversity, because we feel that inclusion is the antithesis of tokenism. So inclusion means, especially with a professional organization like WID, um, you have a place here. There's no tokenism here. You're right. just as entitled to be here and do things as anybody else. And then we get into equity and diversity. So I think those are some of the, the key steps that an organization can take. You know, that, that's an important point that you make about tokenism. Uh, a lot of the, and I'm using air quotes here, which don't really translate that well on a podcast, but a lot of the actions that organizations take are around uh, checking boxes, are around, here's a checklist of things that we're going to do. Uh, right. and, once, and once we're done doing this checklist, the work is done. Uh, and and both, both you and I know that, uh, that this is ongoing work, that we have to persist and once that once that checklist is completed, you have to create another checklist and and go through that checklist, and then you have to reassess where you are as an organization and and go through it again and again and again, because that's the only way you get better, right? I mean, this is in not just in DE and I work, or not just in DE and I work, but this is in anything that you want to do to improve. Is that you have to continually be moving forward because if you're standing still or if you're complacent, or if you're happy where you are, you're actually moving backwards because the rest of the world is moving forward without you. Definitely, and it's funny that you say that because I've been very transparent with people about allies in action. I tell them this is not the place for you if you just need to check a box because there's real transformative, life-changing work that's happening here, and you know it's a self-selecting process. Um, but you have to mean it. You know, it's the same thing about the whole principle of philanthropy. A study was done several years ago and just read an article about it in U.S. News and World Report about generosity and about giving, about philanthropy. And it said that it truly is better to give than to receive, right from the Bible. Um, it, it actually is. It's true. It's literally right, true, right. physiologically true. And the key, the clincher of the whole thing is it has to be authentic or it actually doesn't work. It's like a placebo effect. So unless you really mean it, it doesn't have the same positive impact on your heart rate and, you know, your mental state and emotions. But if you mean it, it really is a wonderful, healthy thing for you to be generous and to be philanthropic. So I think that ties back into everything that you have to be sincere with the work that you do. Box checking isn't going to go very far and it's not going to make any change. And accountability is a big component of allies in action as well, because we know that it can be easy. We all lead busy lives and um, it can be easy to just sort of fall off that bandwagon. And that's why we have a whole follow-up process that we're going to be doing as well. Just checking in with people to see how it's going and how we can still support them. So our paths have crossed in uh, in a serendipitous kind of way. I mean, uh, but we were brought together by Kim Naomi, who is involved with uh, an organization or a committee 
uh, he was non-specific on uh, as to what they were going to call it, and I think you were you were non-specific as well when we were talking in in the open. But the the committee that you all both serve on is around blacks and advancement, and you've recently come out with a pledge. What institutions of higher education need need to commit to to make sure that the work that we're doing is more inclusive and is aligned with the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Can you talk a little bit about how? Um, how that organization came about and and the work that you're committed to there? Sure, that's a wonderful, really important endeavor that I'm so proud to be a part of and um, happy to work with Kim on that as well. Uh, There's a woman who you may have heard of named uh, Dr. Angelique Grant, who is with Aspen Leadership Group, and she's on the advisory committee for WOKE as well. She's a real um, leader in the DEI field, especially Uh, DEI recruitment, you know, using that DEI lens for recruiting and and diversifying organizations and staff. She really was the driving force behind convening a lot of these people together. It's a group of leaders, um, African-American and Black leaders uh, in, in fundraising and advancement. And I think that you know, we, we've had some very interesting conversations before that pledge was even completed because you know, you have a committee, you're going to have lots of different perspectives. Exactly. So, <laughs> so we, we have lots of perspectives, but you know what? We were really, for the most part, all on the same page. And that's a beautiful thing to stand in solidarity with people, just to know, to have the ideas sort of flow, um, because we, we know, and that's the whole thing, right? We say, ask us, you know, all the allies out there, people who want right. to do better and move the needle, ask us, because we, we have some thoughts to share. And so this whole process and the production of this pledge um, is, is that, you know, come to life. And it, it really just lays out the steps that can be taken in advancement to move that needle forward. You know, it stresses the importance of mentorship, you know, of doing that assessment. It's very similar. It's aligned sort of with some of the allyship work that I mentioned before. But um, it's just really important, again, to know yourself to know what's going on in your department, to understand the politics of things that are happening, to listen to uh, the people of color, and especially, you know, in this instance, or black leaders um, coming from advancement, and then to try to take action and to pledge to do it. So Allies in Action also has a pledge because the pledge process is, you know, it's not binding. (laughs) We're not gonna come get you if you don't follow it. (laughs) But to actually say, I sign this and I take this seriously and I'm going to do my best to fulfill everything that I said I would do um, can be a very grounding sort of force whenever you're trying to move this DEI work forward. Well, for those of us believe, that believe in a higher power, it's binding, right? I mean, there's, there's that, certainly an accountability <laughs> that, will, that will happen at some point. So, uh, Amen to I, that. That's true. On the Alumni Trending Podcast, we have a tradition of giving our guests the final word on the state of philanthropy. Your work is is so important and so and so valuable. You've shared just a, a nugget of wisdom after nugget of wisdom uh, here on the podcast already. But I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to dig deep for for maybe one or two more nuggets about what the outlook of, of philanthropy looks like in the United States. Well. I would say that philanthropy right now is, not to be cliche, but it really is at a fork in the road. There's a critical juncture, you know, there's this, this moment 
ahead of us, as I mentioned before. We are on the cusp of some serious change. It's change for the better, change that's going to move us forward as a nation. And it's really important that we put all of our talents and resources to work to move the needle. And so what I see in philanthropy right now is that we have people who are ready, willing, and able to follow those principles, even of allyship, no matter you know where they are, if it's women of color, if it's allies, to educate themselves, to stand together in solidarity and put those dollars to work. You know, gone are those days where you just had some of the big philanthropy and, and checks would be written. They never would totally follow up on it necessarily. Um, a name might go on a building, but it's really just sort of status quo. And now people are very much into the venture and into the adventure of um, seeing their dollars at work and understanding. And I see a shift in philanthropy where, you know, scalability for a fundraiser can be a four-letter word because I exist at this intersection between fundraising and philanthropy, and so I hear from both sides. And right. I know that that's something when you're in advancement and in fundraising, you're like, okay, maybe it's not going out to 20,000 people, but for these 200 people over here whose lives have literally been changed and saved from the work that we're doing, we see this on a daily basis. So trust us on it. And I think there are just a lot of really interesting and heartfelt perspectives that are and, and, and missions that are being moved forward because of that. In some instances, it's great to scale in others. It's just important to get the work done. So I see in philanthropy just taking on the issues of the world, um, the issues of this country. You know, I say the world, you asked me about the United States, but I'm going to say the world because the pandemic has taught us that we cannot be siloed. Right. We can't live in a vacuum. We are connected whether or not we like it. And so uh, there's a whole nod of the U.S. role in global philanthropy and teaching people to fish and moving other things forward, whether it's, you know, mission work, if it's, you know, the nonprofit work in different areas of the world and, and how that pays forward to the work we're doing here. And then it's important also to look outside your window and your door and see what work needs to be done for you locally and right there. And um, I think that in philanthropy right now, everybody's finding their role. And I think that's important if I want to impart anything. It's that everybody has a role to play. The archetype of what a philanthropist is has changed. It is no longer um, a wealthy affluent white male or even female, it's shifting, it's changing. We're starting to look at, at our history, even as people of color and say, we stand on the shoulders of these giants like Madam C.J. Walker and lots of other people who have come before us. And we all have a legacy, black or white, whatever your background, we all have a legacy to be proud of as far as philanthropy and helping our communities is concerned. So to embrace that and then assess your own goals and talents and whatever resources you have and identify that you are a philanthropist or you are a person that is moving philanthropy forward. And so I think if you, if you know yourself, it goes back to the organizational model we talked about, know yourself, do the assessment and go, go and do it. Because um, I, I'm seeing a lot of, of amazing movement in all levels of philanthropy right now. And especially collective giving, giving circles are a big hit. I'm a big fan um, because it brings communities together around a common bond or identity and they can help move that community or, or that issue forward. So I, I really um, encourage people to look into that as well. 
What a great way to end the podcast. Yolanda, thank you so much for joining us on the Alumni Trending Podcast. You are a leader in this space and sharing your expertise with us today is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a real treat. I'm John Fudo, Vice Chancellor for University Advancement at UMass Lowell, and I'm staying on trend by listening to the Alumni Trending Podcast. There you go, Trendsetters, another episode of Alumni Trending. If you are enjoying the Alumni Trending Podcast, make sure you go out to iTunes or your podcast app of choice and give us a rating and drop us a review. We'd also love to hear from you. Drop me an email at paul.clifford at alumnitrending.com. Until next time, thanks for tuning in and keep trending.